0: on Retrieving the Social Sciences, we bring the best of UMBC's social science community to you. It's that time again, everyone. Get out your red, white, and blue clothing, fire up the grill, put your John Phillips Sousa records on, and of course, head across the Pennsylvania state line and purchase a trunkload of high-powered fireworks. No, it's not the 4th of July. In fact, the weather's suddenly turning much cooler here in Maryland, and our sweltering midsummer festivities are all but memories. But it is no less of an occasion to celebrate, because by an act of Congress and a presidential proclamation, we very recently celebrated our nation's annual Constitution Day. While celebratory fireworks and bombastic barbecues are all well and good, Constitution Day provides us with an opportunity to reflect on the design of our nation's foundational document in perhaps a more thoughtful manner. Our Constitution is, after all, a political document, and one that sets up a government that places a heavy burden of responsibility on citizens to engage in the political process. We elect representatives who serve the public interest, and our continued connection to those representatives allows for the complex machinery envisioned by our national and state constitutions to spring to life. What better way to find out about these connections than by hearing from Maryland Delegate Mark S. Chang, who serves the 32nd District within Anne Arundel County. Not only is Delegate Chang an experienced lawmaker who has served in the House of Delegates since 2015 and on a variety of important committees from then until now, but Delegate Chang is also a proud UMBC retriever, having received a BA in psychology, cum laude, in 1999. In our campus's annual Constitution Day Lecture, sponsored by CS3 and the Department of Political Science, we hear about Delegate Chang's personal history and pathways into politics, the role of a delegate within Maryland's political process, and the ways in which Delegate Chang envisions the critical linkage between citizens and elected officials. We also hear from several awesome UMBC undergraduates who asked Delegate Chang questions in a brief Q&A session. I'm delighted to bring you all this great content right
1: now. Thank you so much for being here. As was mentioned, I'm a proud UMBC grad, class of 1999, psychology major, and always treasure the opportunity to be able to come back home. And I know the pulse of this community. I know UMBC very, very well because I was student here. And a lot's changed, but also a lot has remained the same. And I want to start off this afternoon with the story of a UMBC student who reflects the biography of many of the students who are currently at UMBC right now. In 1970, a married couple immigrated to the United States from a country about 10,000 miles away from here, and they came over to this country with a couple hundred dollars in their pockets. They didn't have much resources, they lacked linguistical skills, cultural skills, a lot of the mainstream skills to be able to survive succeed in this country. But they settled in Annapolis and they end up having three children. And they went through a lot of what immigrant families go through. And this was during the 70s and 80s when there was even more racism, discrimination, and those types of factors that were involved. Well, the p- family, they end up growing and I want to talk about one of the children. It was the oldest child in there. And the oldest child, when that child was 11 years old, the mother passed away suddenly. And the father raising three children on his own. And the father had a small carryout business, serving chicken wings and sodas and trying to see what he could do to make a living. And this child ended up going into the public school system. And there were times where... Especially right now, we're approaching the holidays. The child didn't have a lot of gifts during the holidays, and there were times when the child go to school and didn't have the appropriate lunch money to be able to buy lunch, and was food insecure, and would come home sometimes to a dark house because the family couldn't pay the V.G.E. bill, or that there wasn't any food in the refrigerator. Fortunately, because of the community, because of friends, because of the great state they were living in, that these student was able to matriculate and graduate from high school and come to UMBC. And that student, though, was lost, completely lost. Didn't know what the student was gonna do and almost didn't make it. But because of the culture of UMBC, because of the grit and greatness culture, because of the past president of UMBC and the faculty and staff and the student body helping to support that student, that student was able to graduate with honors. And then that student ended up getting into public service. In, in 2014, he was elected to the Maryland General Assembly. In 2018, he was re-elected. In 22, was re-elected. And he serves as the first Asian American to be elected from Anne Arundel County in the Maryland General Assembly. And he now serves as the vice chair of the House Appropriations Committee, overseeing a $60 billion operating budget and $10 billion capital budget. And a lot of that goes to UMBC. And that's why it's such a great honor to be here today to share my story. And that's why I'm so thankful to UMBC, the Department of Political Science for inviting me. Because anytime I can come back and share my story, which is the story of UMBC Retrievers, it's always an opportune time to come back and reinvest in our current students because we as UMBC Retrievers have so much to offer. I just want to thank you so much for allowing me to share my story as we open up the conversation and I look forward to our dialogue. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much for sharing that moving story. Could you tell us a little bit more about your career and how this led to your current role at the House of Delegates?
1: Sure, after I graduated from UMBC, I was with a psych major, I worked in the nonprofit sector, helping individuals with developmental disabilities. And then end up working for Anne Arundel County government for several years. Loved that role because it really gave me a sound, solid foundation of local government and how local government works with state governments and the federal government and really helping people on a regular basis. And really was just year by year and just wor- working in opportunities to be able to help develop my public service skills and also build a network and build relationships and also understand about how I can be effective in serving others through this role of being a public servant. And that's kind of how it evolved. But I would say that, you know, when I was in high school, I did have this little bit of a passion in me. I did serve in my student government association and then also served as a class officer. And I've been able to have a conversation with some of the students here, and I definitely feel that there's that bug, there's that seed that was planted. And I would say that as those seeds and those planted those seeds continue to flourish within you, to not ignore them, that those passions that you have inside of you, to utilize those, and there are opportunities, and you're gonna have setbacks. Let's be real here, there's gonna be setbacks in life. But I would say to continue to remember who you are and the principles that you have, and to be able to work through those, because through those obstacles, through those setbacks, it makes you a stronger person, and it makes you, I think, a better person to be able to serve others.
0: Thank you
3: so much. Now, let me uh, jump in with a little follow-up. Um, and we're lucky to have Dr. Stokan in the audience with us. who teaches an excellent course on state and local politics, but I know that some of you in this audience have not had a chance yet uh, to take that course. So, um, Delegate Chang, uh, for those of us who aren't experts on state politics, can you talk a little bit about how the Maryland General Assembly uh, works?
1: Sure. The Maryland General Assembly is, is a 90-day session. It goes from January to April. And typically during that 90-day session, there's about 3,000 bills that are introduced. And those subject matters vary from social justice, to fiscal issues, to environmental issues, health issues. And then there's different committees in both the House and the Senate. And what happens is, is those bills that get introduced, they go to those different sub- subject matter committees. And then they get a hearing. This is a way for people like yourselves, or students, or the community, for advocates, to get involved in the political process and the democratic process and to get engaged. And then there's hearings on the bills. And then if a bill gets out of committee, then it goes to the chamber it started in. So for example, it started in the House of Delegates, the bill, the bill comes out of committee and then goes into the House chamber and if it succeeds out of there. Then it goes over to the Senate and then it goes through the same committee process and then work its way through the Senate chamber. And then after that, it goes to the governor for either a signature Or if the governor doesn't sign it, it comes comes into law, or the governor could veto it. And then there's the veto procedures that happen where the legislature can override those vetoes that the governor had produced. But there are different ways also where prior to legislative session that there's ways for the residents of Marylanders and also different advocacy groups to get engaged in the process by reaching out to the members of the legislature, letting them know what are their priorities, what's important to them, and you utilize UMBC, for example, as an example that, you know, we always, me personally, and because I love the school, we I often hear about the needs of the school, how we can do more, whether it be helping the students with different support resources or building needs. and as those preparations are being made prior to the session that we help to formulate those different policies or those programs or different fiscal packages to help with regards to, for example, UMBC or the other types of issues that we are advocating for. But again, it's 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 a very busy time. January to April is when the legislative session occurs. So about 3,000 bills go in there and it's really a lot of moving parts. And But I think as a legislature, as a state, that we're doing a better job and a lot better job too in that it's a a lot of transparency. For example, if there's an important bill that you really are passionate about or care about, you can track that bill. And then there's also notifications to let you know where those bills are going. For example, if it passed out of committee, you'll be notified that it passed out of committee and it's going to the chamber and then in, in all those different ways. So there's are so ways to be engaged. And also with the pandemic, you know, obviously we had to move into a virtual world and with Zoom. And now with Zoom and then having that platform, it does make it a little bit easier for people all across Maryland to be more engaged in the process. For example, that you know typically the hearing is in the afternoon on a weekday. And not, not a lot of people can get off of work sometimes and come down to Annapolis and testify. But because of the platform that we have with Zoom, they're able to provide testimony virtually. And also these other new modes of communication that we have with technology, there's different ways to be able to provide that input. So I would just definitely encourage you all to be part of that process because it really is a very fluid and vibrant process. And, and also, UMBC alums and students, they're serving in state government right now. They're serving at all levels of government. But specifically Maryland General Assembly, we have a lot of great students who are career professionals or are interns or who are also members of the legislature. And I do need to say this on behalf of a very prominent UMBC graduate speaker of the House, Adrienne Jones. She sends her very best regards to you all. She's very, very proud of you all. And she's a, you know, she loves you all as a champion in our state for the UMBC community.
3: I wanted to, to ask you a question as, as a political science professor, sure. because uh, to political scientists, you know, this is a relatively rare occurrence. What, um, in two thousand and twelve, you switched political parties. I did. Yep. Um, and so I'm, I wanted to ask, sort of, what considerations went into that decision, mm. and how were
1: you received it, um, by the,
3: you know, um, by the Democratic Party, the, the party you're currently a member
1: sure, of. Sure, sure. In the state of Maryland, you can <laughs> register to vote at seventeen, and when I was seventeen years old. We had the whole contract with America and Google it, if you don't know it, but the Republicans really were reaching out to the voters, and they really did a really, in my estimation, really successful job in reaching out to the new voters. I was 17 years old, and all I know is I wanted to register vote, and I wanted to get involved in politics, and the first person approached me was the Republican Party, and they said, you know what, Mark? We got a voter registration form to fill it out and sign. I was like, okay, I didn't, you know, I didn't know any other way. And I will say this on the serious side, though, and this talks about how really we need to be more engaging, both sides of the aisle, more engaging with our new immigrants, with the new voters that are out there, because my experience was there was only one party that reached out to me. So I was like, okay, well, they must be the only ones who care about me. And as a Asian American whose parents came over here and they're just trying to put food on the table. They're not worried about politics. They're not worried about, you know, Democrat, Republican, or, you know, what, what the House of Delegates is. They're just trying to provide their basic necessities. And I didn't have that knowledge back then when I first registered to vote and also, and it still exists. And I say it in a very loving way, it still exists. But an Asian American community, in the 80s and 90s, there were three things you could be in life. You could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, or you could be a failure. And I still, it still just right now, Asian Americans did not have role models who were in public service at the time during that, when I was growing up. And so I had no idea, so I'm just kind of making building it as I go. I'm like I all I knew is I wanted to get involved in politics, I wanted to serve and and send so up getting in, you know, signing up my voter registration initially as a Republican, and then, as we all go through, we all mature, we all you know develop our thought process, and I found out that you know the Democratic Party is more of a, in my estimation, we still have a lot of work to do, though. We still have a lot of work to do. That was more of a big tent. It's more inclusive. It's more about equality and inclusion, and I think that that's how I was able to, you know, my thought process and how I evolved as it, as far as political parties go. But I will say this though, that no matter where you are in the spectrum, in the political spectrum, get involved. But as the major parties out there, both sides, all sides you need to do a better job on reaching out to our new voters out there.
2: So I wanna switch gears and talk a little bit more about the work that you specifically do. Mm-hmm. What would you say your biggest legislative achievement to date has been?
1: Since my time, in the Maryland General Assembly, I've served nine years on the House Appropriations Committee and we deal with the budget. We deal with $60 billion in operating, $10 billion in capital. Capital is your brick and mortar, We're right here. This library right here, AOK Library, thank you to the state of Maryland, was able to support those types of brick and mortar structures. That's opera- That's capital. Operating is to be able to help with the, 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 the classes that you have here and also keeping the lights on and keeping the staffing and the salaries and all that. So that's all operating. And I enjoy it every day. I enjoy it because I get to see firsthand how the dollars we allocate from the budget committee is really helping Marylanders. we got a lot more work to do. And at the start of the pandemic, we were facing in the state about a billion dollar deficit but because of different federal stimulus packages, through the Care, the Corona Relief Act package, through the American Rescue Plan, through other types of stimulus packages, we were able to help recover. But now, as we're seeing right now, with inflation, with the cost of things going up, and you know, supply chain issues that we continue to are going through right now, uh, different fiscal cliffs, whether they be with the transportation or other types of budgetary issues. But I would say that on a daily basis, I love being able to see how the dollars that we have from the state of Maryland are helping the people of Maryland. And that's really what I would say is I'm really passionate about. And in addition to that, coming from a fiscal mindset or fiscal committee, I was able to help shape legislation also in the policy arena and social justice. Prior to the pandemic, there was unfortunately a rash of, and it still exists, but hate symbols that were being spread all across our state, whether it be Baltimore County, Baltimore City, Howard County, Anne Arundel. And there were hate symbols being put up. And in my home county in Anne Arundel, the judge, there was a court case that was being litigated where the state's attorney was trying to prosecute someone for putting up a hate symbol on a school property. But a judge ended up ruling that there was a loophole within state government that there wasn't any law to be able to punish the person for doing that. In 2019, I had sponsored a bill, and in 2020 I sponsored a bill again to strengthen our penalties against hate crimes. Specifically that if an individual places a hate symbol on a public property that it is punishable by law with imprisonment and also with fines. And the message that we sent through that bill was, and that legislation that passed was that there is no place for hate in the state of Maryland in any community. And that's probably one of my proudest legislation outside of fiscal issues that I was able to contribute to be part of. Because I know what it's like to go through hate. When I was 10 years old, I remember coming out on a hot summer day out of my house. My parents were all, my family were all about to get in the car. And this may be a little graphic, but I need to be honest and and vulnerable here, if I may. That, you know, I came out of the house, my my parents came out of the house, my my siblings, and we're about to get in the car. And then we see hanging from our fence post a deceased cat hanging from a noose. And we didn't know what to do. I mean, do you call the police? Do you call? Who do you call? We, don't, we didn't know. But I still remember that traumatic incident that happened. And I wanted to make sure that no other kid experienced the same thing I did. So that's, I would say, is probably one of the most personal pieces of legislation that I put in.
2: Um, you're a leader of the Maryland. Legislative Asian American and Pacific Islander Caucus. How diverse is the current General Assembly and what impact does diversity play into the General Assembly's priorities?
1: Sure. Within the Maryland General Assembly, there's 180 members in the Maryland General Assembly. And as I mentioned earlier, Speaker of the House, Adrian Jones, graduate of UMBC, she's the first African-American woman to be the presiding officer of the Maryland House delegates. So we all have a lot to be proud in that. She's a definitely a reflection of the diversity that's ever increasing in the Maryland General Assembly. And within the Asian American Pacific Islander Caucus, we have eight members who are of Asian American Pacific Islander descent. And that spans from Howard County, Montgomery County, Anne Arundel, and Baltimore County. And that's at 188. And it's a start it's at a start we're at a start right now and and but i think what's really encouraging to see is that you know prior to governor moore governor hogan was the governor of the state of maryland and his wife was a korean american first lady of, of maryland was asian-american and she really did a wonderful job in being an ambassador for the asian-american community and and I think that, from my perspective, I think that really helped open the floodgates for more Asian Americans to be inspired or to get involved in state government and, and local government, because I, I, at that time, during that window, I saw more Asian Americans getting into government and, public, and, and serving as public servants, whether it be working as a staffer in the Maryland Department of Health or being the Special Secretary of Business and Minority Affairs or uh, Deputy Secretary of the Maryland Department of Health or these other types of different agency positions. And I think that we are, as a General Assembly, are being more reflective of of the constituents we represent. But I also think that state government is being more reflective of the people that we serve. And just looking in this room right here, wow. I mean, you all are the future. And, you know, talk about myself 25 years ago, you know, talking to my 25-year-old self, you know, back then, I would just try to pay it forward right now. And just if anything, I'll, you know, I wanted to be encouragement to you all because you all will be the next generation of leaders in state government, in, in international government or in international relationships or, or local government. And so you all are the future. So embrace it.
2: As you know, we live in very turbulent times going through political conflicts and constitutional crises. So what role do you envision Maryland and some other states playing to check the federal government when it takes actions that Marylanders would oppose?
1: To address the specific question, because we are so close to Washington, D.C., we do actually are very symbiotic. There's a lot of, there's a strong connection and that what happens 20 miles down the road, really we're sensitive in the state of Maryland. And actually in the state of Maryland, we have more federal assets in our state than any other state in the union. That shows that we're really reliant on the federal government, which can be good because during recessionary times or during times where there's economic turmoil, that we aren't really as sensitive as the rest of the country because we're so heavily reliant on the federal government, but also too that because we had that strong connection to federal government from a fiscal standpoint, we're able to benefit a lot in getting federal dollars to help out in this area. But also shifting gears now over to the policy side, use for example, Dobbs versus Jackson, Roe versus Wade. When that happened, the state of Maryland, the Maryland General Assembly was very sensitive to it. And with regards to reproductive rights, so during this past legislative session, the both chambers, the Senate and the House, passed and enshrined where the reproductive rights would be in, enshrined in the Constitution. And the governor did sign that. So on November 8th, 2024, when you all go to vote, it's gonna be giving the voters the opportunity to permanently have the reproductive rights enshrined as one of the articles within the Maryland Constitution. So that's how what we see in Washington, D.C. on the federal level affects what happens on the state level. And now other states, they're going in different directions. And you know, that's a whole different type of conversation. But as far as the state goes, what we've been looking at is with regards to reproductive rights as an example of how the Maryland Constitution is, is in the process of being altered or revised because of what happened on the federal level.
3: So let's let's go to the audience now. What other uh, things about uh, uh, Maryland politics or uh, Delegate Chang's uh, uh, career would
1: you like to learn about?
2: Um, how should like, the Maryland committee system work in the House delegates? Like, how did you end up on the accommodation?
1: It... I would say that you, what the speaker does and the leadership do, they take a look at what the different interests are of the different members, and you know, fortunately. You know, I was able to serve. I'm able to serve on the the budget committee, and I love it because I'm a generalist, and it's really a way with the budget committee. You can touch everything: health, public safety, infrastructure, environment, and a lot of different ways. And that's how the committee selections occur, usually. But you know, the members they can submit what their preferences are, and the speaker of the house, or the, and on the on the house side, she makes those decisions, and then the president of the Senate makes those decisions on the Senate side of where those different committee members or how that you know is selected and then also too that there are different members that may start off let's say in the judiciary committee and then they may end up going to the environment and transportation committee or there may be members who are serving an appropriations committee who will end up going to health and government operations committee so these are different so it's very nimble and very agile and i serve on other subcommittees too i serve on the other subcommittees and committees too and also special committees I serve on the spending affordability committee and that's a committee that is comprised of looking at what the forecasts are for state revenues and then determining how much we're going to be able to spend within this coming fiscal year and I also serve on capital debt affordability and again that looks more on the you know as far as the bonds issuance and other types of investments, and how we're gonna make those investments in a very fiscal prudent way. And then I also served on other types of special work groups. For example, one of the things that we are really trying to do, and I think we're doing a really good job as a state, but we're gonna do more is helping our returning citizens. So those citizens and those residents in Maryland who were incarcerated for a period of time, and but they're now getting back into returning to society. and you know, helping them with the resources to be able to be successful and avoid recidivism and to be able to, you know, help be, you know, good, productive citizens. And that's, those are things that we are working on. And I think that, you know, those, you know, but those different, you know, interests and also too, you know, they, you know, they, the members of legislature, they have a sense of what your passions are and, you know, and also, you know, the types of legislation that are being introduced and sometimes, you know, you know, for example, that you know, if you're passionate about a certain subject matter, that you know there'll be legislation. Now, you know you'll be able to take the lead on, and so that's that's how that kind of that process works. Uh,
3: uh, yeah, Dr. Anson. If, if,
1: if no one else wants to
0: go, I'd be happy to uh, ask one. Uh, I'll ask a Constitution Day themed question if you wouldn't uh, mind. So, of course, in the Maryland Constitution, right, there's a provision uh, for the House of Delegates and uh, you know, the, the uh, State Assembly. Um, but there's also provisions in the Constitution that creates local governments. Right. And I wondered if, given your experience on both sides of mm-hmm. this equation, if you would speak maybe to in your current role or in your history, uh, the degree to which these governments interact. So right, I think it's, yes. as a pedagogical question, also, you know, some of my students are here and they're learning about constitutions for the first time. Yes. Uh, it's very interesting to think about the levels of government and the way in which they interact, specifically.
1: Whether it be U.S. Constitution or Maryland Constitution or whatever state constitution out there that. You know, it's, it's fascinating to see the different articles and how you know, those have changed over the years or how they can change over the years, too. In the state of Maryland, quick snapshot of state of Maryland. Six million residents in the state of Maryland, 24 jurisdictions. And within that, we have several hundred, excuse me, about 200 municipalities. And we really do work very well together. And there's different organizations, for example, in the municipality level, we have the Maryland Municipality League on the county level. We have the Maryland Association of Counties, and on the state level, what we do is we meet with those different counties on an individual basis, or collectively, or there's municipalities again collectively or individually, and we hear those needs. and And for myself, for example, even though from Anne Arundel County, I represent Anne Arundel County, the voters of Anne Arundel County elect me, but serving on the House Appropriations Committee, it's really cool for me. I mean. From Glen Burnie who grew up poor, couldn't even imagine the type of you know this opportunity. But I'm able to travel all across the state, go visit Cumberland, see the things that they're doing in Cumberland, Allegheny County, or going to down the Eastern Shore and seeing what they're doing in Salisbury. And but we all work together very closely, and whether it be jointly as those associations or individually that there's ways for them to be engaged in the process. And it goes, for, again, from the policy side to the fiscal matters. But it's, it's really a way where we all are able to work together pretty closely because we do have that strong relationship and bond. And even when the elected officials change at the different levels, that there's still that infrastructure in place where there's relationships are established and we can still pretty much continue government in a way that effectively serves the people all the way down to the neighborhood level. And I think that's something that I know, I know that's something we can all be proud of and we continue to do it in a way that is effective. And also with our federal delegation. Again, with state of Maryland being so close to Washington, D.C., but all states have this. We have a Maryland office in Washington, D.C. that keeps in very close contact with our federal delegation in Washington DC in the White House, and we let them know what the needs are in Maryland. So it's a very fluid relationship we have. But I would say that because of that joint collaborative spirit that we do have, is the way where we get things done. Like you know, we all come from different cities, and I think the way that those potholes get you know, repaired or street lights get repaired is because of that relationship that we do have.
3: Thank you for your um, uh, uh. Coming here, thank you for the great questions, um, and um, yeah, and let's uh, one last time please uh, thank our special guest uh, and our alum, Delegate Martell.
0: Now it's time for Campus Connections, part of the podcast where we connect today's featured content to other work happening on UMBC's campus, and today we have a perfect connection because our production assistant, Jean, is the connection. Jean, if you don't mind, please tell us a bit about this connection. I think your fellow UMBC student listeners will be very interested in what you have to say.
2: Hey, Dr. Anson. I'm so excited to talk about today's connection. Last year, I actually interned at the House of Delegates at the Maryland General Assembly, so for today's segment, I'll talk a bit about my experience and how to get involved if you're interested. So, for the 2023 legislative session, I was an intern for Delegate Nick Allen of District 8. As someone who has aspirations to go to law school, I applied to the internship to get some hands-on experience with policymaking and the legislative process, and I definitely did. Seeing how politicians, legislative aides, lobbyists, and constituents all interacted in the process of creating laws was pretty inspirational and showed me how things actually got done. I definitely learned how to network and communicate on a professional level at Annapolis receptions. Also, being able to sit in meetings to strategize bill hearing testimonies and aid in constituent communication showed me the inner workings of how Maryland law is made. One of the coolest parts of the internship was that Three of the bills we had proposed and worked on during this session actually got enacted into law. It was really eye-opening to see how the laws that affect me and my community actually form, and amazing to be part of such an impactful process. All in all, I learned so much from the experience. If you're interested, check out the Maryland General Assembly Internship Program page on UMBC's Department of Political Science website under Internships. October 25th is the deadline for applications for this upcoming 2024 session, so you have a bit of time if you still want to apply. And that's all for today's Campus Connection. Back to you, Dr. Anson.
0: Thanks, Jean, for that connection and for explaining how UMBC students can get involved in the process of Maryland's government. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Delegate Chang's political career and his thoughts on the Constitution, and that it inspired you to think about the myriad ways that you can get involved in politics. And as we reflect on our vital role as citizens in this democracy, never forget to keep questioning. Retrieving the Social Sciences is a production of the UMBC Center for Social Science Scholarship. Our director is Dr. Christine Mallinson. Our associate director is Dr. Felipe Filomeno. And our undergraduate production assistant is Jean Kim. Our theme music was composed and recorded by DeWan Moreland. Find out more about CS3 at socialscience.umbc.edu. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where you can find full video recordings of recent CS3-sponsored events. Until next time, keep questioning.